Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I want to pray more. More vibrantly, more often, more joyfully, with more faith. I want to pray more. But as we round out this Lenten series on the Lord's Prayer today. One of the questions that keeps emerging as we look at the idea of prayer is the question of prayer's effectiveness. I mean, does prayer really work in the face of what really troubles us, in the face of what really frightens us? Does prayer work? It's like the exam in college where after the students write their exam, the professor says, as you bring up your exam sheets and hand them in, I also want you to sign this piece of paper that is a declaration that you did not receive any outside help during this examination. And one of the students comes up and I think he's being a little cheeky because he says, well, you know, I prayed to God throughout the exam that he would help me. So can I really sign this sheet? And the professor says, give me your exam. And he flips through the exam answers, puts it down on the pile and says, oh, you go right ahead and sign the sheet. Obviously, the prayer you were asking for, the help you were asking for, did not come. <laughs> Is prayer effective? Does it work with those things that really frighten and concern us? In Luke chapter 11, Jesus' disciples come to him with that request, Lord, teach us to pray. And as we've seen each week, this request is not about just give us the words to pray, but Lord, teach us to have in prayer what you have in prayer. Teach us to have the same kind of power and authority and effectiveness in our prayer life that we see in your prayer life. Jesus responds with these words. He says, pray like this. We've done it each week. We do it each time we gather to worship as believers. Pray like this, he says. Say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
This week, as we close, we end with the final petition. Pray like this, deliver us from evil. With this final petition, we face the question of real evil in this world and the question of prayer's effectiveness in the face of evil. As that question on the front cover of your bulletin says, is prayer practical in the face of evil? It was like after the New Zealand mosque shooting where a New York congresswoman put on Twitter these words, what good are your thoughts and prayers when they don't even keep the pews safe? Now, as insensitive as this tweet was, and may I just say, it seems that not many politicians have much of a filter on Twitter these days. Lord have mercy. As insensitive as this tweet seemed in the midst of this tragedy in New Zealand, it's an honest question for a secularist. For someone who does not believe that there is a God or in the power of God, it's an honest question to say, really, you keep talking about prayers, you people of faith, but are they really effective in the face of real evil in our world? Well, this petition, this final petition has incredible good news for us. Deliver us from evil. And to understand the incredible good news, we've got to look at Ephesians chapter 6, that armor of God passage. If you'll turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. What Paul does in this armor of God passage is he unpacks some of what Jesus is teaching us in this phrase, deliver us from evil. See, as we pray these words, deliver us from evil, it pinpoints the enemy. Praying deliver us from evil pinpoints the enemy, the true, real enemy. But not only does praying these words deliver us from evil, pinpoint the enemy, but praying these words proclaims victory over that enemy. But it's not enough just that praying these words deliver us from evil, pinpoints the enemy and proclaims victory over the enemy. But finally, as we pray these words, deliver us from evil, we are pushing back the enemy. First, praying deliver us from evil pinpoints the enemy, the true enemy. Paul says here in Ephesians 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. Paul is saying that there is a cosmic battle going on and it involves the devil and his demonic army. Now I know our contemporary world struggles with the concept of the devil and personified evil. People will accuse us of being medieval of being rather small-minded, of being irrational. The 1995 film, The Usual Suspects, popularized one of the most famous quotes by the French poet Charles Baudelaire when 
Kaiser Sose says these words. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. See, the Bible affirms again and again the reality of the devil, the reality of personified evil in this world. First Peter 5, be sober-minded, he says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But it's not just that the Bible affirms the reality of personified evil. The, the concept of personified evil makes sense of the world we live in. In 1994, in just a hundred days, the world was horrified to watch over 900,000 Rwandans kill one another in the streets. And let's be clear, much of it wasn't by militias, but by neighbors with machetes. How do we account for this nature of organized evil in our world? The Bible tells us, and it seems that the front page of our newspapers tell us, that there is a malicious personified evil presence in this world that is seeking to undo us. As William Peter Blatty, the novelist and screenwriter of the Exorcist film, wrote these words. He's an atheist, but he says this. He says, as far as God goes, I'm a non-believer. But when it comes to the devil, that's something else. The devil keeps advertising. The devil, devil does lots of commercials. This prayer, deliver us from evil, pinpoints the true enemy behind all of our enemies. See, our real enemies are not other people groups that disagree with us or politicians we disagree with or systems that are broken or rogue nations or that boss at work that just drives you nuts. The true enemy before you is the devil of hell. That's what scripture shows us. And if we can see it, that's what our world shows us again and again. But see, praying these words deliver us from evil doesn't just pinpoint the true enemy. It proclaims victory over that enemy. Deliver us, O Lord, from this evil one. Deliver us. Verse 10, Paul says in Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He doesn't say be strong just because you've found some inner strength. He doesn't say be strong and take it like a man. Don't be strong and take it like a woman. He says be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. You see, Paul is affirming that the devil is strong and his weapons are powerful, but God is stronger. We read that in our passage from Mark chapter three today. It's that strange moment when the scribes from Jerusalem, they can't figure out Jesus. They can't figure out how this man has the power to cast out demons. And so their newest theory in Mark chapter 3 is, oh, he casts out demons because he's in league with Satan. And Jesus says, how irrational and illogical are you? 
I'm casting out Satan's horde. I mean, how can Satan be divided against Satan? Clearly, if Satan's minions are popping out of people every time I preach, then it seems that something's changed in the nature of our relationship with Satan. Here's what he says in verse 27. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. What Jesus is saying is, Satan is the strong man that you're all terrified of. And if you see demons popping out of people, then I guess somebody was stronger than the strong man. Somebody went into that strong man's house and bound him up, and you're seeing his house plundered now through my ministry. Jesus is the stronger man. That's what he's declaring. But ultimately, as we'll see, especially as we approach Holy Week, the ultimate victory over this strong man, the ultimate victory over Satan is at the cross and the resurrection. As Colossians chapter 2, Paul describes this work that happened in the death and resurrection of the Son of God. What happened at a cosmic level and how it affected us. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That when Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying, taking everything wrong in you and me, and as he rises from the grave, overcoming death, no wonder our liturgy says he trampled down hell and Satan under his feet. He has conquered and overcome the great strong man, the great adversary, the accuser, Diablos, the devil, the serpent. So when we pray, deliver us from evil, we're proclaiming victory over the enemy. Christ's victory. It's like my preaching professor back in seminary, Daryl Johnson, was coaching us as we went out from seminary. He says, what's going to happen hypothetically when you show up one day in church and nobody shows up for church that morning? Now, of course, he's talking about a church planting context where you've got you know, a very small pe- group of people may be coming. Or in my case, when you're up near Alaska and there's been a snowstorm for three weeks and you trudge through the snow from the church house, which is on the same property, open up the doors, sermon prepared, and nobody shows up for church. Daryl says, what do you do? He says, before you leave and lock the doors, you stand in the pulpit and you preach the sermon you have written that the devil may hear it and tremble. This is what's happened because of the death and resurrection of the Son of God. When we pray, deliver us from evil, we are not just pinpointing the enemy, we are proclaiming victory, Christ's victory over that enemy. Now, just hold on a second, you may say, victory? I mean, doesn't 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, tell us that the devil, though he's received that mortal blow, is still raging around as a dying beast, seeking to destroy us, and he absolutely is. As Paul says in this Armor of God passage, these flaming darts that come from the enemy are real, and they really hurt. Jesus has won the victory that will be consummated fully when he comes again in glory with the new heavens and the new earth. But now we stand in victory over this enemy and he's still raging. Which is why he gives us his armor. That's what verse 11 means when he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy. Now, this armor of God passage, I know many have heard it before. It's been perhaps overtaught. I would argue it's sometimes mistaught. Two things quickly on the armor of God. Number one, let's be clear what I think Paul means by the armor of God. And I'm not going to go through the, all the list of things. You can look through them later, and I'm sure many other edifying sermons are out there. But here's what I think Paul's really pointing to when he says the armor of God. He's actually referring to God's own armor. Like the armor that the Lord wears, that Yahweh wears as he goes into battle. It's God's own armor being placed on us. We know this because if you look at Isaiah 59, Isaiah describes the Lord, Yahweh himself, going into battle. And here's the armor that he puts on. It sounds so similar to the language that Paul uses. Isaiah 59, verse 17. Yahweh, the Lord, puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. It sounds just like the armor of God Paul's referencing because it is the same armor of God. What Paul is affirming is that Yahweh, the Lord, has come and is placing his own battle armor on you and on me. But here's the other thing that often gets confusing with this text is that so often this list of armor pieces gets taught as a man-made effort of making sure you put your armor on this morning. Like, did, did you get up this morning and, and actually put your armor on? Because if you're getting those arrows from the devil, then someone didn't put their shield on. It's all about you after all, isn't it? See, it can't be some kind of man oriented effort of putting our armor on. That's not what this armor is. How could we possibly ever put on God's armor ourselves? I mean, Paul's using this as a metaphor of putting it on because the reality is we could never earn this armor. We can never possibly own this armor by our own nature. Do you know, do you know how you got armored and how I got armored? You know when it happened? It happened, if you're a Christian, when water came upon you with these words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is in baptism that God places his armor on the Christian. It's there. The question is, do we believe it's there? As Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 says, as many of you who have been baptized... As many of you who have been baptized have put on Christ. That's what happens in baptism. We put on Christ. It's imputed baptismal strength. 
And it changes our whole view of the enemy, doesn't it? It changes our whole perspective of the enemy. As the North English preacher Smith Wigglesworth once wrote in his journal, he said, I awoke in the middle of the night with this tangible sense of evil in my bedroom. And he writes this, he says, I suddenly sat up in my bed and I saw the devil. I rubbed my eyes to be sure it was him. And I said, oh, it's only you. Nothing of consequence. And I laid my head back down and suddenly an overwhelming sense of peace and love filled the room and I had the most blessed sleep ever. See, as we pray these words, deliver us from evil. We are not just pinpointing the enemy, but we are proclaiming victory over that enemy. But here's what's amazing. It's not just that as we pray these words that we pinpoint the enemy and proclaim victory over the enemy, but as you and I pray these words, as Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, you and I push back that enemy. See, verse 20 ends, it ends this whole epistle, this passage in this whole epistle on such a strange note. Because Paul says this, he says that he's preaching the gospel, he's asking for them to pray that he may proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, he says. Now that phrase ambassador in chains, is, is, it's a strange, almost oxymoronic statement because to be an ambassador is to be out there and speaking on behalf, in this case, speaking on behalf of God, moving the world, changing the world. I'm an ambassador for God. But then he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. And you've got to say, but Paul, how, how does that work? How can, you can't be an ambassador in chains. I mean, you're in a weak position. You've got no power. You've got no authority. I mean, you just talked all about this armor of God, Paul, but it seems Someone forgot to put their armor on. Like, you're in chains. Like, what's going on, Paul? But look at how he links this phrase, ambassador in chains, with prayer. See, in verse 18, after all the armor of God, and by the way, the sword in verse 17 is not the only weapon. The next weapon is prayer in verse 18. When he says to the church, he says, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word boldly here, he means... I, I, I need you to pray, church, and this is what you need to pray, that I may brazenly, powerfully, with authority, proclaim the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Here's what Paul is saying. It may look like I am in the weakest position. It may look like I am just being undone by Satan, by this enemy who's put me in prison. So I want you to pray. Pray that I may take back territory from that ugly old enemy. Pray that I may brazenly and boldly 
proclaim the kingdom. And that's exactly what's happening. Paul is taking ground from the enemy. We are reading this letter that was written in that place of weakness, that prison cell in chains, almost 2,000 years later. Paul was taking back the kingdom. Paul was pushing back the enemy because that's what we can do in prayer, even in our most weakest moments. Make no mistake, we will have our weak moments. We will have our times of tragedy and persecution. Times when we begin to doubt everything. Times when those flaming darts come at us in such a way that we say, I don't know if I can stand. I'm not strong enough to take back the kingdom. And yet in those moments, just like Paul, there is strength as we pray these words. Because Paul understands in his weakened state that it's God's armor it's God's power, not his, that makes him able to stand. Suddenly these words from 2 Corinthians make so much sense to you and I in the midst of our weakened moments. Paul says, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the gospel. And this is what prayer is. This is the nature, the gracious nature of the effective power of prayer against evil, even when we are suffering under evil. It seems that Paul is weak, but in Christ he is strong and pushing back the enemy. And it seemed, of course, like the devil had won at Calvary, didn't it? I mean, man, he, he got Jesus nailed to a cross. It seemed like the devil had won. And it seems like the devil wins when he brings suffering and persecution and pain into your life and my life, but things are not as they seem. As the great hymnist, hymnist William Cowper once wrote, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. As James 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I want to close with this story of a medical missionary named Dr. Raymond Edmund. Dr. Raymond Edmund was a medical missionary to Uruguay. And as he was in the mission field, he fell sick and was dying. And he was on death's door. They, in fact, had already dug his grave. And suddenly in the middle of the night, Dr. Raymond Edmund sat up in bed and was healed. And he went on for a couple decades more of missionary work in Uruguay. One day, a couple decades later, he was preaching in Boston. And he was telling the story of this miraculous healing where he was healed from death's door. And at the end of 
the prayer meeting, an elderly lady approached him with an old notebook in her hand, and she said, what day did you say you lay dying in Uruguay? And he told her, and she leafed through the old notebook until she stopped and said, there it is. And she turned and showed him a page with that exact date, the writing now old and very faded, but it read in her journal, at 2 a.m. this morning, God said to me, get up and pray. The devil's trying to kill Raymond Edmund in Uruguay. As we pray, deliver us from evil. We, you and I, church, we push back the enemy in Jesus' name. As 1 John 4 says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I want to pray more. More vibrantly, more often, more joyfully, with more faith. I want to pray more. Praying, deliver us from evil, pinpoints our true enemy. It's not the people in your life. It's not the situations in the system. It's the devil of hell, and it pinpoints it. And it focuses our aim And praying deliver us from evil not only pinpoints, but then proclaims victory over that enemy and finally pushes back that enemy. And though this world, Luther writes, with devils filled, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that little word is the name Jesus. The name of the one who has won the victory over this enemy in his death and resurrection. The name of the one who's placed his armor on you and I in baptism and the name of the one who has called us to pray, deliver us from evil. Oh Lord, teach us to pray. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.